The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that gives you the power of beautiful design. So you can do more than create a website, you can set yourself apart. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com slash guardian. Hello and welcome to the Books Podcast with me, Claire Armitstead. With all the recent hysteria over migrants, we thought it was a good time to look at how an earlier generation of refugees have fared. Pretty impressively, it seems. Both of this week's guests fled the disintegration of former Yugoslavia. Sasha Stanicic ended up in Germany, while Alexander Hemon found himself in the United States. Both write in the language of their adopted nations. Here's the opening of Hemon's latest novel, The Making of Zombie Wars. Script idea number 12. DJ Spinoza is a misfit no one understands. Not his schoolmates, not his friends, not his teachers. His one dream is to DJ at his prom night and blow all those assholes away. After his radical DJing results in a disastrous party at the place of the girl, Rise, he aims to hook up with, he ends up castigated. What will it take to make everyone dance and Rise fall for him? Title, Spinning Out of Control. Now what could I do with the boy, Joshua asked himself. All human feelings are derived from pleasure, pain, and desire. But most importantly, Spin could say to Rise, from the beat. And what if he said nothing? What if he was the strong, silent type? Why this and not that? Writing is nothing if not carrying the hopeless, back-breaking burden of decisions devoid of consequences. Afternoon at the coffee shop slipped into evening, just as Joshua's caffeination reached the heights of Rwandan plantations where his beverage originated. Hence he was burning to surf the web for Rwanda, learn some interesting facts about other cultures, and allow his current creative dilemmas to resolve themselves. Back in the day, before the world wide web of temptation, there used to be that thing called inspiration. Then the spirit was perpetually displaced by trivia and vanity search. Mercifully, there was no internet access at the coffee shop. Hence, Joshua opened up a file with another script in perpetual development, titled The Snake Man Blues, in which a comic book geek and a retired superhero, the Snake Man, ungainfully employed as a public school English teacher, team up to fight the evil mayor of Chicago. Joshua was incapable of deciding whether the Snake Man would die at the end or live to go back to teaching the truly heroic activity in the city of Chicago. And if so, whether he would do so in his human or his serpentine form. The happy ending was corny, while the death was depressing, and Joshua could think of nothing in between. Besides, how exactly would a reptile fight the CPD and the devious mayor? Too hypoglycemic to type a word, which would then perhaps lead to the next word, he could only perceive the blank space below what he'd written last. Snake man, don't! Let's take care of the boss first. Baruch the spinner was right. 
infinity exhausts all reality. But finitude does it too, almost. Joshua stared at the crosswalk outside the coffee shop, where nothing was happening, until he discovered some comfort in devising wisecracks for some imaginary audience at some future dinner party. How is a shoppy different from a shop? Did the wife of Bath drink soy milk chai lattes? Are the Middle English-speaking baristas commonly stricken with black death, etc.? He was about to open a new file to log all the shoppy cracks when a pack of ROTC cadets appeared on the Olive Street horizon in fatefully slow motion, reminding him of that long shot in Lawrence of Arabia where in the flat-line desert a speck grows into a horseman. The cadets forded the streak, fake punching one another, slapping the shaven necks, no worry in their lives, save the fear of being expelled from the pack. And then he saw them in the desert, thickly coated in dust, tongue hanging thirsty on their way to a battle where they would mature and or heroically die, the nefarious natives offering them contaminated piss-warm water in beaten tin cups. The cadets couldn't begin to conceive of their sandstorming future. They couldn't as much as pity themselves in advance. In fact, they could see little beyond their imminent meal, beyond acting out their childish toughness, beyond play-acting hand-to-hand combat at lunch break. He who has a mind capable of a great many things, has a body whose greatest part is eternal, wrote Baruch. And out of the sad ROTC mindlessness, the scene from Dawn of the Dead was recollected, in which zombies tottered in circles around a depopulated shopping mall, unable to forget their life before their undeath, their infected brains still retaining the remnants of their happy Christmas memories. A chubby cadet sensed the intensity of Joshua's inspired gaze, and as the rest of the corps trundled on to the next-door sandwich shop, stopped to grin at him from the other side of the window. His face was wide, his cheeks flushed, his front teeth of uneven sizes like a skyline, his eyes lit up with the arrogant innocence of youth. In a blissful blink, Joshua saw the narrative landscape neatly laid down before him, all the endless possibilities, all the overhead and wide shots, all the graceful character trajectories blazing across the spectacular firmament, all the expanse conducive to a love interest. All Joshua had to do was stroll through that Edenic symmetry and write it down. This time he was determined his vision would not decompose in the computer memory with the skeletons of his other ideas. He opened right then and there a new final draft file and created the title page to stare at it. Zombie Wars by Joshua Levin Chicago, March 31st, 2003 So that is our first introduction to Joshua Levin, who's a 33-year-old aspiring writer. He's also a sort of um, delay. He's still an adolescent, really, in his head, isn't he? Yes, yes. He never quite got out of adolescence and the freedom that he acquired at that time, the freedom of, you know, related to the lack of responsibility toward other people and himself. To what extent is Joshua 
personifying American culture, American masculinity? Well, he personifies it up to a point. I mean, American culture is complex and there's a wide range and there are uh, women and, and many kinds of people in it. But there's a particular tradition in um, American culture of, you know, late adolescence, male entitlement. David Foster Wallace reviewed one of the late books of John Updike, and, uh, which I hadn't read. I can't remember what it was. But I remember that he said that John Updike had a bizarre idea that you can stave off metaphysical despair by sleeping with whomever you want, whenever you want. Um, and so, you know, he ascribed an adolescent, bizarre adolescent idea, David Foster Wallace, to John Updike. And that tradition was has been interesting to me in various ways for various reasons. In this book, Joshua as a character comes from that tradition. When I opened this book, I looked at the title and I thought, oh my goodness, how can he write a book called Zombie Wars? This is really not for me. Have you gone, you know, are you actually becoming a sort of filmy? But that's actually not what it is about at all, is it, in one sense? No, Joshua, um, one of his projects is now a script called Zombie Wars. And unlike his other script ideas, which he, you know, comes up with constantly and the text is littered with his never developed ideas he pursues the idea of zombie wars and even in that script the zombies are less important than the hero uh, who fights them or tries to find a solution to the zombie problem one major k major Major very unlikely name (laughs) yes as his creative writing tutor points out as the screenwriting workshop conductor suggests so Major K becomes this projection of Joshua. While Joshua has little agency in his life, Major K acts and comes up with solutions to the zombie problem. Actually, what the film is doing is creating a, a sort of fantasy reality which mirrors the reality that's going on in the background, which is a historical reality. We know that this is in 2003. You mentioned it there in that first reading but we also in the background the statue of Saddam Hussein is being toppled that is happening and we're on the brink of the Iraq wars the book takes place in the, about the first two weeks of the Iraq invasion um, and which includes the time includes the toppling of the Saddam Hussein statue it also overlaps it overlapped with Passover and so to me um, one day as I was writing on a whim I checked when the Passover was in that period. And it turned out it nearly exactly overlaps. So that whole messianic salvation narrative, I mean, abused and misused by Bush, uh, was activated. I mean, I could activate it in, in my book. James Wood in The New Yorker described you as a postmodernist who's been mugged by history. Do you recognize that? Well, I mean, I don't know exactly what postmodernists do. Um, as opposed to modernists or non-modernists. I think, you know, postmodernism is a time we live in, or at least it's available in the time we live in. To my mind, all approaches to literature that have happened up to this point are available to me. All structural operations, all philosophical ideas are, you know, at my disposal as a writer so that I can do things that have not been done in the 19th century but I can also do things that have been done in the 19th century or the 21st century. That's the uh, advantage of being a writer at this time. The very first instance of you being mugged by history in terms of your literary career was when you happened to be on a visit to Chicago, when the siege of Sarajevo began, which was your home city, and you got stuck in Chicago. I was supposed to fly from Chicago to Sarajevo on May 1st, 1992, which means I would have landed on May 2nd, 
1992, and that was the day the siege started. And the city was closed off on May 2nd, 1992. So before that, I had decided not to go, and I returned my ticket to people who paid for it. Um, so I stayed in Chicago. I was stuck because I couldn't go back, but also I didn't make a decision to stay. I mean, it was theoretically it was possible to try to get back. Did you speak English then? I did speak English, but I couldn't write in English. That, that you know, registers of language are many, and so I didn't have the register that would allow me to write in a way that I wished to write. I could speak, but when you speak, you can negotiate the meaning. You can ask the person you're speaking to help you to establish the meaning. You can just fake uh, and you know provide the meaning that your language uh, allows you to provide. I, for instance, seldom used articles back then. Even now, I sometimes you mean make at mistakes. the and and right. the and the articles. Are, there are no articles in the, in Slavic languages. It's a faculty that every Slavic language speaker has to develop, uh, you know, and I had to do it at a later age. Uh, but if obviously you cannot write without the articles, never mind a small vocabulary that I had, never mind the complexity of s sentences and syntax that I need to express my rolling thoughts. And so it took me a while to um, reach the register of the language that I needed to write. Is it true that you taught yourself to write reading Nabokov? I read many books and I would make notes um, and make lists of words that I would check later in the dictionary but you know Nabokov has extremely rich vocabulary and he has had been my favorite writer he has been my favorite writer so I, I spent a lot of time reading Nabokov and a lot of words I have picked up from Nabokov I read Raymond Carver too but Raymond Carver his vocabulary you know it wasn't too demanding this novel has been described as your first really American novel. Do you accept that? No, I mean, my first novel was my first American novel. I don't know how, not only did I write in America, but whatever was in that, in all of my books, it pertained to America. You know, I don't mind being an immigrant writer unless it means that, you know, you're outside of the, the American space. Um, to the extent that immigrants are essential to the existence of American space, uh, to the extent that there are so many people writing in America now in their second language, creating American literature as we speak, to suggest, and I'm not saying that you're suggesting this, that I'm somehow, you know, outside of it and that my efforts are commendable and that only now I have reached a point where I can do it. No, I do not accept that. Does it not mean something a bit different, though? Isn't what they're saying that it, what you're doing is you're going inside the psyche of a sort of generational all-American man, as opposed to writing from the from the immigrant experience. I yes, I suppose there's a difference in the position of the continuum between you know, immigrants, newly arrived immigrants, and Americans. But I have written characters who were Americans before in various ways and to various degrees of importance within the narrative. So yes, this is my first American main character, but I've had American characters before. You have a cast of supporting characters from Bosnia, in fact, and there is a sense of that actually there is a real violence there that actually Josh sort of can't quite imagine or, until it hits him. Well, one of the things I want to do is to put Josh in a situation which he's essentially um, in the middle of a system of ripples of various wars, but he's oblivious to it. So he, when he encounters Bosnians, you know, he has a sense that there was some war at some point, but... He has no access to it, but the ripples of the Bosnian War affect him. Similarly, his girlfriend, who's Japanese-American, even her parents are, or grandparents, may have experienced World War II in their particular way. They may have been interned. 
in the camps. And then um, Joshua's grandparents are Holocaust survivors. So Joshua, in his life of late adolescence privilege, thinks that war is elsewhere, including under it all is the Iraq War. Um, the notion that war happens to other people is difficult to sustain. Wars affect people wherever they may be. I mean, look at the situation now, that all these wars that have been ignored for years. Now there are droves of people coming over because of those wars, and everyone um, everyone is affected by their presence, or their, at least their attempts to establish their presence. One of the fascinating things that happens in this novel is, in a way, it's basically just sort of, it's a chamber opera, isn't it, of conflicting love interests. But because of your use of film and because of the stuff that's going on politically in the background, you've got this massive weight of history and culture that bears down on a sort of almost like a pencil nib of story. Well, it's hard for me to imagine how you can live outside history. And it's, you know, privileged societies in the United States, there are people who can actually imagine that. And to me, it's, it's not a moral or political judgment. It's just as I don't know how a washing machine works. I do not know how such a mind would work, but it's possible. And so testing that was interesting to me. In other words, Joshua thinks that he's exempt from history and wars and that weight, and then he stumbles into it, and he stumbles into it, you know, comically and, and falls many a time. But what novels can do, what literature can do, what I want literature to do is to expose the the mechanisms of history as they affect individuals, wherever they may be, whoever they may be. There's an, a great ambivalence towards the United States. It's, it's arrogance, it's complacency, all sorts of things about it in this novel. Do you actually like America? You live there now. Are you going to stay there? Do you think of yourself as American? I do think of myself as an American. I love Chicago. I love where I live. My wife and children are American. Um, I like the fields of human experience that are available in America and the potential that they have. America is a complex place, a complex field. What I don't like is the ideology of America, the rhetoric of, you know, the promised land or manifest destiny or the exceptionalism or, you know, the proclivity to uh, wage wars or the notion that violence is a constitutional right of every citizen so that if the state tries to impose a monopoly on violence, then people buy guns and they shoot at other people because access to violence is related to enfranchisement. You know, you can find (laughs) flamethrowers, buy flamethrowers in the United States. That's, I mean, that's problematic. I will never get used to that. Um, But what America allows for, it allows me, is to talk about it in a critical way. And I, you know, I reject any suggestion that if I don't like it, I should leave it. I live there, which is why I'm critical of it. Not because I want to escape, but because I do not want to escape. I want to address everything that annoys me. Um, You're evoking film culture. Are you, in a way, as a novelist, flirting with the idea that America's dominant culture is actually film, and here you are a novelist? (laughs) I think, well, dominant in what way? It's dominant in that it is the place or the, the field or the domain where the American subconscious collective fears might be played out, I think. If there's such a thing as a collective subconsciousness, it is in film in the United States, less, far less in, in the novels or, or literature. At some point in the past, that may have been the case. And I, you know, this is why zombies are interesting, why the zombie trope, which has been used so many times, and it's 
quite literally empty. They have no life, mind, or anything like that. They only exist as a mass. Why it had been activated, it has been resurgence, indeed a renaissance of the zombie trope and zombie discourse, as they say, after 9-11. Similarly, the superhero franchises. Now (laughs) we have reached a point when one superhero per movie is not enough. It's two or more, ideally four, between four and seven. And so why this increase in the fantasies of, of superpower? And to my mind, and this is a proposition because I'm not a scholar or a scientist, it is related to the fact that the United States is no longer a superpower. That the Iraq war, the whole project, and the related project of dominating the world politics and global tendencies has been an abysmal and catastrophic failure. However you measure it, it was a failure from my point of view, ethically and morally and politically, from the get-go. But even if you accept the goals of Bush and the military-industrial complex as legitimate, they have failed. And so the whole superpower story is over. That's difficult to accept if you believe in American exceptionalism and it's the destiny of America, the duty of America to affect human history. Well, you know, you can watch superhero movies and have superheroes fix the world and stop the villains. So against this huge, great national myth, self-invention, you pit... Right. Joshua Levin, 33-year-old Jewish yeah, script-writing wannabe. I do not expect a victory in this particular battle for myself. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you've got many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands and businesses choose Squarespace. Start your free trial, head to squarespace.com slash guardian. Alexander Hemon there. And The Making of Zombie Wars is published in the UK by Picador. Another writer who found himself cast adrift by the war in Bosnia is Sasha Stanicic. A fissure runs through his 2006 debut, how the soldier repairs the gramophone, as his narrator echoes the novelist's own flight from conflict to a new life in Germany. His polyphonic second novel, Before the Feast, is firmly rooted in the German countryside. When he came to the studio to talk to Richard Lee, Stanisic began by summoning his imaginary Brandenburg village, a village in decline which refuses to go quietly. We are sad. We don't have a ferryman anymore. The ferryman is dead. Two lakes, no ferryman. You can't get to the islands now unless you have a boat or unless you are a boat. You could swim, but just try swimming when the chunks of ice are clinking in the waves like a set of wind chimes with a thousand little cylinders. In theory, you can walk round the lake on foot, keeping to the bank. However, we've neglected the path. The ground is marshy and the landing stages are crumbling and unhappy. The bushes have spread. They stand in your way, chest high. Nature takes back its own, or that's what they say in another place. We don't say so because it's nonsense. Nature is not logical. You can't rely on nature And if you can't rely on something, you'd better not build fine phrases out of it. 
Someone has dumped half his household goods on the bank below the ruins of what was once Schielke's farmhouse, where the lake laps lovingly against the road. There's a fridge stuck in the muddy ground with a can of tuna still in it. The ferryman told us that and said how angry he had been, not because of the rubbish in general, but because of the tuna in particular. Now the ferryman is dead, and we don't know who's going to tell us what the banks of the lake are getting up to now. Who but a ferryman says things like, where the lake laps lovingly against the road. And it was tuna from the distant seas of Norway. So beautifully, only ferrymen say such things. We haven't thought up any more good turns of phrase since the fall of the Berlin Wall. The ferryman was good at telling stories. No one saw the ferryman drown. It's better that way. Why would you want to see a person drowning? It's not a pretty sight. He must have gone out in the evening when there was mist over the water. In the dim light of the dawn, a boat was drifting on the lake, empty and useless, like saying goodbye when there is no one to say it to. Divers came. Frau Schwermuth made coffee for them. They drank the coffee and looked at the lake. Then they climbed down into the lake and fished out the ferryman. Tall man, fair-haired and taciturn, using verbs only in the imperative, brought the ferryman up. Standing on the bank in their close-fitting diving suits, black and upright as exclamation marks, dripping with water and eating vegetarian bread rolls. The ferryman was buried and the bell ringer missed his big moment. The bell rang an hour and a half later when everyone was already eating funeral cake in the Platform One cafe. The bell ringer can hardly climb the stairs without help. At a quarter past twelve the other day, he rang the bell eighteen times, dislocating his shoulder in the process. We do have an automated bell ringing system and Johann, the apprentice, but the bell ringer doesn't particularly like either of them. More people die than are born. We hear the old folk as they grow lonely and the young as they fail to make any plans or make plans to go away. In spring, we lost the number 4019 bus. People say, give it another generation or so and things won't last here any longer. We believe they will. Somehow or other, they always have. We've survived pestilence and war, epidemics and famine, life and death. Somehow or other, things will go on. Only now, the ferryman is dead. Who will the drinkers turn to when Uli has sent them away at closing time? Who's going to fix paper chase treasure hunts for visitors from Berlin? In fact, fix them so well that no treasure is ever found and the kids cry quietly on the ferry afterwards, and their mothers complain politely to the ferrymen while the fathers are left wondering, days later, where they went wrong, feeling that their virility has been questioned, and once on land again, they eat an apple, ride towards the Baltic Sea on their disillusioned bicycles, and never come back. Who is going to do all that? The ferryman is dead, and the other dead people are surprised. What's a ferryman doing underground? He ought to have stayed in the lake, as a ferryman should. And no one says, I am the new ferryman. The few who understand that we really, really need a new ferryman 
don't know how to ferry a boat, or how to console the waters of the lakes, or they are too old. Others act as if we never had a ferryman at all. A third kind say, the ferryman is dead, long live the boat hire business. The ferryman is dead, and no one knows why. We, we are sad. We don't have a ferryman anymore. And the lakes are wild and dark again, watching and observing what goes on. So how did it start? How did you find yourself setting a novel in a village about 100 kilometers northeast of Berlin? Uh, it's the story takes or starts rather in Bosnia. It's maybe surprising because the topic itself is so far away seemingly from the Balkans. And because the novel is so very particular to that region. It is, it is very much set in the cultural landscape of the north of Germany. Um, but the topic itself, being a mosaic of, of a disappearing village, is very universal. And through my travels now in France, Norway, you will always meet people who tell you, you know, it is northern Germany, but I so sense as my own village and the problems that we have, the infrastructural problems, the youth wandering off, uh, unemployment, even the right-wind radical which parties, which is stronger in these areas. All of these things are... Not as much, uh, you know, topically connected to northern Germany. Um, they are very universal. But the, the story starts in a very small village in the eastern Bosnia. Um, it's a very special place for me because my family of the father's side, the forefathers of my father, my grandfather, have been living in the mountains in Oskorusha, so the name of this place, for many generations. And um, I went there with my grandmother in uh, 2008, and she wanted to show me this place because I have never been there. And there you have to imagine today only 13 people li living there. So you don't have to be a prophet to know that this village is not only in the process of disappearing, but it is actually already gone. Uh, you have to park your car and then walk five kilometers in order to reach it. And the people who live there are old people. The houses are crumbled and the decay is everywhere. So I'm you know, being through a civil war which was so strongly on the shoulders of religion and ethnicity and origin, I have tried my whole life to put away those borders of our existence and try to say to myself, be as free as you can and try to learn uh, rather than to be something because you coincidentally has been that from your birth. But in this village, we went to, uh, to the graveyard and I would say like every third tombstone had my own last name on it. And suddenly the, the thing of origin becomes something so concrete because it's, it's there. You know? it, and there it is, it's sticking in the ground. It's sticking in the ground with the, with the bodies of those who cannot speak anymore. And then there's the, there was this guy, his name was Goiko. He was showing me around. He lives there. So he took me to a well, to an old well, and he said to me, drink. I was like, I'm not thirsty. And he was like this large man. <laughs> and so I was, yes, you will drink. So I drank. What's, what can you do? And, and then he said, this is the well. Who, it was built by your grand-grandfather. And it was the best water I have ever tasted, suddenly, you know. So these things of material and nature become, I'm not an esoteric person, but they have some value. So what I did, a year later, I went back because I said, they will disappear, but their stories are not allowed to disappear. Suddenly, I was one of those writers who have this kind of a museal function to keep the stories alive. It's really like an old thing, but I suddenly felt the need to not let them die with their village. So I've spent a lot of time with them. I wrote down these stories to keep the village alive after it's gone. Went back to Germany and noticed that every single story, legend of killing the dragons in the mountains and stuff like that, 
I had still to do with my family and with myself. Even though they were talking about their own lives, which are totally disconnected with the globalized world, totally disconnected from my own life, there was something so familiar to them, and something intimate, that I could not find myself able to turn them into fictions. There was no way that I could make stories out of them or a one big story. And also, I found the German audience just wrong for it. I wanted this to be read in Bosnia because this village is, for example, so far away, so remote for everything that all the wars have passed by unseen. So those people have a very healthy view on those things because they are untouched by the evil. In, if you want to think it like that. So what I did is I looked for similar places, not this small, it was very hard to find, but places which are full of history, full of stories, and are endangered in a way, because I knew that they are there, and it led me to Brandenburg over many coincidences. So what I did is, is spend time there to learn the stories, to learn the, the history, and at some point I started to invent the stories, and it was much easier than to deal with, with the history of my family. What have you done with those stories from Bosnia? They are still there. Um, I want to make a photography book, a big one, because the landscape is just breathtakingly beautiful. It's high in the mountains and it's just it's unreal how the nature has you know, retaken these places and how, what the people, how they look like. And so I want to make a book, a pho- actually a photographic book with a photographer and put those stories uncommented next to them because this is the only way I think the most, the biggest respect would be just done to the stories. Just those keep, voices. keep even the way they are told, not edit much in them. So to try to keep the voices of the villagers. But these stories then led you to Brandenburg, as you Exactly. And, and yes. this novel, which is it's a kind of strange place to find yourself in as a fiction reader. It's a place where the 17th century fight between three villagers and the local landowner over a pile of apples. So <laughs> it seems as real as the kind of new electronic lock on the oak door in the, the local archive. It's a, it's a place where Polish and German refugees sleep at Frau Reif's house, uh, as you say, under the same roof, separated only by a little time and history. Does this timelessness, this, this living connection exist only in the countryside? Um, no, I'm, I'm definitely sure that you will have those layers of history also in big cities that's, uh, that does not make much difference. But I, I just found them to be so much more presentable to myself and also to a reader, because in a way, I always imagined the places where uh, which have been settled down so far away in the time uh, to be like creatures uh, with their own consciousness. And that's what literature can do. They, it can give them life and voices. So for me, it was easier to transfer a smaller universe of a village into those layers of history that you just mentioned, where time and people are, you know, kind of like, I don't know, like like layers of a cake are put on each other. And sometimes they touch, sometimes they are far away from each other. But at the end, it's one one cake that they make. So this is uh, the village. I found that easier in a much more bordered space than in the city. In the year of our Lord, 1588, in the merry month of May, Two fine horses were spirited away from Ulrich Ramelow, innkeeper in this place, and two starveling nags left in their stead. His groom gave word to the innkeeper as had been given to the groom himself by two men, one tall as a tower and the other round as a barrel, that since he, mine host of the inn, kept good beer aside for himself, but watered what he served his guests, so that it tasted thinner even than small beer, the horses he kept should be such sorry nags as those the two fellows left for him. 
the novel is shot through with these uh, historical documents, sort of these kind of these old stories. Right? Was it fun to, to to invent those for yourself, to to find them and and run with them? One part of it, it was really fun. Uh, it was the part where, as a writer, I enabled myself to imitate the old German language, which is like you know, it's a completely absurd task because I had no idea except I could you know. I'm not a linguist, but I could access all documents. Um, but it was a fun task in a way that, that I would find, let's say, uh, an example from the book. There is a, a priest, in the, I think in the 16th century, who in his uh, city chronic that, that he is writing, um, it has a very small entry of three lines where it says that uh, they had found a pig with a human head in the city. And, so, and then he stops there and goes over three months later to the harvest, and you're like, what happened to the pig, you know? <laughs> so what I did is basically I go back to this entry. I put it in the front of my chapter in the story. And then I imagine what did the men of the village think about this? And who did the pig look the most, you know, equal of those <laughs> men? So what I do is I take his language. I take his story beginning and end it with my own story wherein I bring the men to the pig and let them discuss among themselves uh, what is to be done with the poor animal. I mean, you were saying that the, the inspiration came from Bosnia, but you yeah. found the novelization of it in Germany. It's a very kind of European thing, this, this sense of timelessness, this rich sense of history, which is unimaginable to, to an American living in Arizona or something. Is this, is, this, <laughs> is this a very different thing apart about the European experience? It is one of the things that I have found out during the, the writing process is that the stories that I have been researching in this small village in Bosnia um, are structurally very, very uh, similar to the stories and legends and local legends of Brandenburg. Separated by so much geographical and cultural distance, you have still the same effects being used in those stories, same motives, um, same protagonists, you know, the, the wild but good thieves and stuff like that. So it was maybe for a historian uh, a very banal experience, but for me it was a beautiful thing to see how far away seemingly our narratives are and how easy it is to transfer them to another culture by just... For example, changing the names of the protagonists, nobody would ever believe that these old legends are, from their motives, based in, in some little village in Bosnia. And I liked it. I liked this play also that, that I don't, as a writer, I would not, you know, offer the solution to this. Um, they still are seemingly from the Brandenburg, but in the end, it's very European. It's a very European, even actually, I don't, I don't think I ever told this to anyone. There are two stories which I found in all English books. There's one story about the guy. Uh, he's, I think, some kind of uh, noble who finds, um, how do you call it? The, the thing that, the, uh, not the elk, but the animals who have these whole... The horns. Yeah, the horns, yeah. yeah. That's actually an English story. <laughs> I, I love it so much because he hurts himself and dies on this wound. And I, I, I find this... this an amazing effort of this guy to pull them out of the ground and not even knowing what it is because he just he's the tip of it. So even this is now in Brandenburg. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's pulled from everywhere. <laughs> oh, we get to know quite a few of the villagers. There's the disgraced former postman who, who keeps chickens. There's the woman who runs a local museum. And there's a girl who's about to leave for university. Even a vixen on the prowl. Uh, and the story's kind of assembled in chunks of these people's stories alongside scraps of history. But it's all put together on this thread of this this collective we, this sense of the village. Where did that voice come from? 
Well, first, I had a, a structural problem with the book, which is maybe a very unsatisfying answer right now because I had too many eyes. I had a mosaic of, let's say, maybe 10 or 12 protagonists, and all of them were to the stories were told in the first person singular. And it made the book become some postmodern monster, which was not <laughs> held by anything but the place, the place where they were in this night, the Fürstenfelder, that's the name of the village. So, one of the first problems that I encountered after a while was the jungle of it. So I could not even myself read it in, in a very you know, straight narrow way. So I had to find a solution for that. The second thing is that the narration during the research of the people who I talked to, they used the first person plural much more often the more they trusted me. The stories that they've been telling to me about the GDR, about their own life, had become increasingly group stories as if they wanted to give me a stronger argument for, for their stories by saying we as a community have done this. When and the things really touched their core, when it was... When they wanted me to believe a truth that there was in their story, when they wanted me to believe how plagued they were by the change of the government, when whenever the politics were the case, which they were, you know, you just mentioned one of the characters who seemingly has been stealing letters and giving them to the Stasi, to the, to the secret police. Whenever the, the subject was society or politics, they would use the we in a, in a stronger way which I liked. Um, and then I, I found out a very, uh, I, I didn't find it out, I felt it. This we became a pronoun which was very exclusive. So if you say we, you always also mean them. Yeah. And that was something constructive about the identity of this village. And I wanted to, to, to make it constructive of myself, that the reader is part of the we included, but also always a foreigner, somebody who will never belong to it. So those three reasons, the structural one, then the narration way of the villagers, and then this kind of uh, exclusion-inclusion game that led me to, to choose the we. And then it solved my structural problem and made a book coherent and readable at the end. Is this novel rooted so deeply in, the, in this particular part of Germany, partly as a, as a way of writing against the kind of cliché of immigrant fiction? I do believe that I have uh, chose to write about a very German place because I have been confronted with so much biographical interpretation of my first book and always had to answer the questions about war and refuge and all these things, which is great because th I would not have written the book if I didn't have to say anything about it. But then still I wanted maybe to prove myself too that I'm able to go away from my personal biography to do something else. And also I really, really don't like the label of the immigrant, migrant literature because I feel it always just focus on one aspect of, of you as a writer, your biographical background. And I think this is wrong. You wouldn't say, oh, this writer belonged to the fair-haired writers <laughs> or this one belongs to the ones who have really big nose or something like that. No, and it is okay to use it in a way if the story itself has a biographical uh, or m migrant background. I'm okay with that to a certain point. But, you know... Just to prove maybe that those categories are more limiting than actually helping. Uh, there was a part of when I wrote a book, I was thinking about it, but I would not have written it only for this reason to do so. Yeah, you say you're sick and tired of talking about the migrant experience, but it, this summer, this sometimes seems as if the world's been on the move with all, all the pictures we've seen from the, from the Mediterranean or, mm. or indeed from train stations across, across Central Europe. How does that feel to someone like yourself who, who made a similar journey? It's, it's devastating and it has not much to do with my own biography and my own journey as a refugee. It just has to do with the, with the fact that, that I don't, I, empathy is not that you are able to ima imagine how, how you would feel in the same situation, which I can because I have been. Empathy is to try to imagine how this person feels in this situation. And this is what Europe 
for most of the parts is lacking right now. It's um, protecting itself. It's trying to find reasons not to instead of want to. And the, the most sad part about it is that 1992, when I came to Germany, the discussions were completely the same. And in the Germany, just a couple of days after we arrived to Germany as refugees, there was a asile home burning exactly the way and the exactly same extremist language as you can find it now in the politician talks. And right now, you know, everybody's talking about how Germany has opened the borders. And it's really great what Merkel is trying to do. But... At the same time, Simon, you have in the society such a such a strong opposition towards the openness of the culture and such a strong opposition towards refugees that it makes me really sad. Without even without my own experience, it's just kind of frustrating to see that twenty years have passed and we still have to lead the same discussions about who is welcome and who is not. And in my particular case, what what I've been observing that even the, let's call them like the, the good left press, is still trying to make the difference between the good refugee and the bad refugee. How can you do that? Like, who are you to judge them, first of all? They come and you don't know any backgrounds. Of them. Just because the fear of that some of them might be criminals or might be terrorists, you are, you know, uh, saying that, that everyone is. It's just plainly wrong to take myself as an example for a good refugee. There is no such thing. As when we came, we were just glad that there were people to help us, that there were anybody who would, you know, give us you know, clothes. We had three suitcases. That's all what we had. But there is no plan what to do now. As much as I want every single refugee to find a place in the society and to be integrated in any way that he likes or she likes, there will be a, a point in time where we won't be able to help everybody who needs help. And that's not good. If fiction is in some sense a machine for exploring empathy, is this something that fiction writers can help with? Well, right now, I would actually really wish that, that fiction writers in the first place go there and, and try to you know organize stuff and practical things. Uh, because I don't think that the hungry child can, can right now learn anything from fiction. But if a writer can produce um, empathy through his book, in order to open minds, then yeah, let's use it. But don't make it a tool of moral authority. Don't make it a... Literature was, for me at least, was never meant to be a, a tool to change people. And it, it, it has less and less power to do so anyway. But it can show the social discrepancies in the society, the things that I mentioned in the beginning of my last answer. It can try to research right-wing party makings in the East and can try to fictionalize stories of those who need help and can try to, yeah, in, in a very small way, open worlds to those who, who, are, who don't want to see. Sasha Stanichich talking there to Richard Lee before the feast is published by Pushkin Press. And that's all from us this week. If you have any thoughts about the podcast or any ideas as to subjects we should cover in future, do let us know. You can leave a comment on the podcast page. Just search for Guardian Books Podcast. I'm off to spend the weekend catching up with the Booker shortlist before the award on Tuesday. More news on that next week. Until then, thanks to Alexander Hemon, Sasha Stanichich and Richard Lee. From me, Claire Armitstead, and my producer, Eva Krishak, another Eastern European migrant, as you might have gathered from her name, goodbye. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.